Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. I'm Michael Krasny. Coming up next on Forum, the granting of H-1B and other temporary work visas will be suspended beginning today. The White House says the order will help create jobs for some of the 40 million Americans who have lost work due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But Silicon Valley firms say the industry needs more skilled workers. We'll talk about what the visa freeze means for jobs and foreign workers. Then a coronavirus outbreak at San Quentin Prison is surging following a transfer of inmates from a men's prison in Chino in late May. We'll discuss the latest developments. That's all next on Forum. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. President Trump Monday suspended a number of immigration visa programs affecting tech workers and students, among others. The White House says the move will help get Americans back to work as the economy continues to reel from 40 million virus-related job losses. But critics say freezing the visas is an election year political move that will hurt U.S. businesses, particularly in Silicon Valley. Joining us now to discuss the moves are Rachel Myro, Senior Editor for KQED Silicon Valley News Desk, and we'll have some others with us as well. But Rachel, good to have you with us. Welcome. Thank you. I'd like to begin, actually, by simply pointing out that there was an article in the, West, uh, in the um, Wall Street Journal that said that about 525,000 people would be affected by this in terms of not being able to enter the country as a result, which includes 170,000 green card holders that were banned from uh, entering in April. But break it down for us, if you could, Rachel, just in terms of who is involved in this, because it's not only H-1B, which we'll be focusing on. There are five categories. That's right. There are multiple different categories. It's a wide variety of people who might be affected or affected temporarily, depending on who wins the election in November. Uh, you mentioned H-1B visas. You know, um, we, we've seen Silicon Valley companies looking for for actually an expansion on that cap of course critics of the program saying that it's a uh, long overdue for some kind of an overhaul maybe not this one but some kind of an overhaul uh we we have so the h1b visa just to break it down it's it's the most well known it typically skilled tech workers and not just you know tech when we think social media but also healthcare tech also uh media it, it, these are skilled workers people who have a particular skill 
set. And it's why you hear some folks, um, you know, critics calling it uh, an election year ploy, uh, because many of the people who have lost their jobs during the pandemic are not skilled tech workers, but but folks in hospitality, uh, in tourism. And, uh, you know, and unless you happen to have a, a handy dandy, you know, skill set and computer programming, this may not be a move that that benefits you. We've got the H-2B visa. These generally apply to seasonal workers in a wide variety of industries like landscaping, forestry, hospitality. So there, you know, maybe some of these 23,000 possible jobs might be a boon for American workers. We've got the J-1 visa, and this uh, typically is involved, uh, it, it's an exchange visitor visa for f things like work and study-based uh, visitor programs. So, you know, you would be talking about uh, interns, trainees, camp counselors, au pairs, and uh, the L-1 visa, which is also important to Silicon Valley. Uh, these are people in typically managerial positions. So let's say that, uh, you know, Google wants to bring somebody in from their office in France uh, to, to work in a managerial position in Mountain View. Uh, that may be held up at least until the end of the year. There are exemptions, though, right? There are exemptions. There have always been exemptions and, uh, you know, always will be. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're talking, uh, you know, tens of thousands, possibly a few hundred thousand people who might be impacted, at, at least temporarily. Well, and in fact, uh, health workers and so-called essential workers are part of that exemption. But we're talking about medical workers only being exempt uh, if it affects coronavirus. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it, it's worth mentioning that this wouldn't be the first time that we've seen the Trump administration try to squeeze shut uh, the pipeline of, of various forms of people coming into the U.S. for various reasons, uh, including for for uh, work visas. Uh, so so in, in some ways, this this isn't uh, out of the ordinary for the Trump administration. They've been at this for several years now uh, during the, the first term. So, uh, you know, the, the real question is why make this announcement now and, uh, you know, how will we actually see it impact the various businesses that rely on these workers? Well, I know listeners may want to weigh in on this or have questions uh, for Rachel Myra, who's with us, senior editor of the Silicon Valley News Desk with KQED. And if you do have questions or if you simply want to weigh in here, you can join us now. Questions about the suspension of the visa programs, call us at our toll-free number. The number to call is 866-733-6786. I'll give that number again. It's 866-733-6786, the number for your calls. And you can also, of course, get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email any questions you might have to forum at kqed.org. We do welcome your involvement and do, in fact, want to hear from you. Let me tell you who else is joining us. Uh, uh, Kopena Petibotla is attorney for the former and former immigration chair for the South Asian Bar Association of North America. And we welcome you to the program. Good morning to you. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me on your show. Glad to have you. Also glad to have Daniel Costa, who's joining us as well. He directs immigration law and policy research for the Economic Policy Institute, and is former senior advisor on immigration and labor to the California Attorney General. Welcome, Daniel Costa. Hi, thanks for having me. Glad to have you. And uh, uh, Kalpina, let me begin with you. And let's begin by talking about just the fact that we're uh, at this point talking about the possibility of replacing jobs uh, with American citizens. I mean, that's pretty much the line that we're getting uh, 
out of this executive order from the Trump administration. Technology, as I've said earlier, and as we heard from Rachel, uh, so many in the uh, uh, tech world are saying leaders and so forth, they've sent notices to us saying we need these workers, they're vital to us, uh, we have to have them, we have to have them for innovation. All of these reasons have been pretty much uh, played out. But the fact of the matter is, uh, what about the job pipeline? Uh, isn't there a possibility of American citizens filling these jobs? Um, that's a fair question, Michael. I, I think, though, that it needs to be unpacked a bit because, um, I mean, there's not necessarily a one-for-one -one replacement. By the time a company has decided to hire a foreign worker, they've typically gone through a fairly lengthy job search and um, then spent thousands of dollars determining who they want to hire. And when they've gotten to the point where they're hiring an H-1B worker, they, they can be anywhere between five to $10,000 in on, on hiring that worker. And I think it's, um, you know, the notion that one worker coming in displaces another worker may not be a fair characterization, especially when we've seen the H-1B program and other programs, other guest worker programs actually be instrumental in helping spur job growth. Well, Daniel Costa, I think you are on record as saying this H-1B visa program needs to be reformed. Uh, this is not necessarily the answer that you're looking for? Uh, no, definitely not. I mean, the, the president is not putting in place real lasting reforms that would you know, raise wages and improve conditions for the migrant workers that come in or uh, to ensure that U.S. workers have a fair shot at these jobs with the, the H-1B uh, program in particular is a, is a very important program to bring in skilled workers. But um, uh, if you look at the evidence and the data, you see that um, a lot of the workers who come in are actually paid uh, less than the local average wage for the jobs. And there's been countless cases of uh, employers uh, abusing this program to replace U.S. workers, forcing the U.S. workers to train their replacement. So there's problems with with the visa program, and, and these have been, you know, documented and reported on. But um, uh, the reality is, is it is an important program, and some of the some of the workers who come in really are skilled and uh, and and needed. And what Trump is doing is 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 not going to fix the program. Um, and I, I don't know if you'd mind letting me just have 30 quick seconds of, of why these programs are even an issue right now. Um, you know, they're they're one of the most misunderstood aspects of, of the immigration system. They don't really get discussed despite playing a real outsized role in, in, in policy debates. So, so these visas that we're talking about are non-immigrant visas. They're, they're, uh, you know, they're temporary, which should be distinguished from immigrant visas, which are uh, uh, quote-unquote green cards that confer you know, permanent resident status on, on, law, uh, on, on immigrants and can allow them to eventually get citizenship. And I think there's uh, you know, no denying that a lot of the work visa programs really need to be reformed because there's you know, 1.6 million of these migrant workers who are here on these visas. They account for about 1% of the labor market. Um, and you know, there's plenty of evidence that these workers can be often legally underpaid, often exploited, uh, in part because these visas are usually tied to one employer who owns and, and, and controls that status. That means you know, uh, the employer controls the workers' right to remain in the country. They lose their job. They they become deportable. They often pay thousands in fees and recruitment fees just to get that job. 
And um, there's also very little oversight of these programs. Most of the programs have no rules in place to protect migrant workers after they get to the U.S. There's little enforcement. Um, and, and so, you know, and you don't have to take my, my word for any of this. There's been countless exposés in the news media, government audits and reports and uh, reports from immigrant advocates that show that this is the reality. And, and most of these workers who come here never actually have a chance to stay permanently or to become citizens. And so you know, the, the, my last point is, is, is that nevertheless, these work visas are one of the few existing pathways for migrants to contribute to the U.S. economically, socially, and culturally, which I think, you know, every administration should prioritize reforming these programs in, in ways that uplift labor standards and ensure that all of these migrants who come uh, and contribute to the United States are paid and treated fairly and have a chance to become permanent residents. But this yeah, I think it's been... It's not just not it's not an honest attempt to fix the programs. It's been proven pretty incontrovertibly that the system is being abused and has been abused uh, for a long time. Now, you just think about what happened with Disney uh, hiring all those higher skilled workers uh, to train uh, foreign workers to give lower salaries to them. And many of them just come in about 80 percent, I think, is the figure come in at lower salaries. Uh, what the Trump administration is trying to do is uh, they're trying to pretty much do away with the lottery and make only supposedly the higher salaried uh, workers come in here. Let me bring a, uh, a listener in. And by the way, you can join us and we welcome you if you have questions to join us at 866-733-6786. Janine joins us first. Janine, good morning. You're on the air. Hi, uh, thank you. I just wanted to make a comment that the other type of visa that's being affected by this is the J-1 visas, which is the affects the APAIR program. We were set to get an au pair for our childcare this coming year to come in September, and now that's not happening. And obviously this has greater economic impact in the fact that now I will likely not go back to work at the capacity I was planning to, and many other families will also be left without childcare in an area where it's difficult to obtain childcare. Yeah, well, I wish you good luck on that, and thank you. In fact, uh, Rachel Myra, we'll go back to you on this. Uh, our pairs are definitely uh, affected by this, or potential our pairs. Yes, and I, I think it's worth pointing out, you know, following up on, on what uh, Costa was just saying, you know, we, we have this very uh, Kafka-esque, arcane system of bizarre rules governing all different kinds of visas, uh, all of which are, are kind of Band-Aid approaches to different uh, workforce needs in the U.S. and it kind of stems back to the basic fact that we haven't had a major national congressional overhaul of immigration law since 1990. Think about where you were in 1990. The world has changed profoundly and yet uh, you know both Democrats and Republicans have been unable to come up with some kind of modernization act and it would really have to happen in you know in Congress and the Senate uh, you know with the direction of whoever is in charge uh, in the White House and and that is the fundamental problem here is that you have you know lots of policy decisions and philosophies at war with each other in this very arcane system that's developed uh, in you know given the lack of this kind of comprehensive immigration overhaul I'm looking at some questions coming in from listeners, and you can certainly add your questions here by emailing us, forum at kqed.org. And uh, if I could go to you again, Kalpina, uh, this is a listener says, are H-1B visa holders actually paid as well as their American counterparts? Uh, anecdotally, I've seen H-1B workers in the tech industry use as a way to lower labor costs for big companies. Yeah, I mean, 
I'm not sure I entirely agree with those characterizations, um, just based upon some of the experience I see representing many um, startups in the Bay Area and other high-tech companies, along with several of my colleagues. Um, we're at the, we are required to find a prevailing wage that the Department of Labor has um, identified for, for, you know, as a minimum salary. So the notion that they're completely undercutting wages, I don't think is a fair characterization. I know Mr. Costa has a different viewpoint about the uh, prevailing wage system, and maybe that's, you know, that's the thing that we can take up in the future when there is more emphasis on um, immigration reform. But I, I'd like to go back to some of the points he had made, which is this notion that the, the system is not regulated, and that's not true. Um, there is significant regulation of the H-1B system, um, including often site visits. Um, there's numerous documents that companies have to put in. The notion that everybody's just trying to undercut the wages, I don't think um, I don't think that that's a fair characterization. Um, it's not one that's borne out in my own practice and what I've seen um, amongst the companies that I represent. And in fact, many times the companies, uh, many of my clients have suggested that they've had to raise wages in order to be able to keep be consistent with H-1B workers. And so while there's room for reform, um, there's certainly different ways to do it. And this approach that the administration has taken today is not really geared at actual reform. And in fact, it's, it's, it's fairly interesting because it's not going to be borne out in what's going to happen at the consulate anyway at the moment. Many of our U.S. consulates, most of our U.S. consulates at the moment are not processing visas. Um, and so in some ways, the what the administration is doing is simply um, – you know, making an announcement that, in truth, we're not able to process visas anyway, so what's the purpose of the announcement? And I think the purpose is really more to create a chilling effect. And there are many who are saying that uh, in, the, in the tech world, in the world of Silicon Valley, that the economy can't necessarily uh, rejigger itself without the kind of hiring that's been done uh, traditionally Absolutely. with H-1B visas. But let me get you to respond, Daniel Costa, because I know you want to. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, look, uh, we agree that the H-1B is, a, is, a, is an important program and that um, there are rules and regulations. However, you know, those are probably inadequate. The wage rule is something that I do think needs to be fixed. There, 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 there is a share of H-1B workers who come in and are highly skilled and are paid fairly. But, I mean, the data show that 60% of them, you know, come in at what are called wage level one and two, which are both below the local average wage. So there is a legal minimum prevailing wage that employers have to pay. But the Labor Department has the authority to set those where they where they want, and they set two of them below uh, the average wage. And that, that's a... That's a long story that I, I won't get into, but that's, you know, if you want to read more about it, you can go to epi.org. But um, so, uh, and the, the other point that was made that I, I completely agree with is, you know, the this is a totally symbolic um, action right now because there are there are almost no temporary visas being issued at all around the world except for H-2A workers which uh, come in to do temporary work in agriculture. The, 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 you know, the entire system is shut down and I don't think uh, that it's going to be back up and running anytime soon. This, this uh, executive order ends 
in uh, at the end of 2020. And uh, do, does anyone really think that uh, you know visas are going to be processed? Does anyone think that any of these visas that have been suspended would actually uh, be issued uh, between now and then? I'm I'm highly skeptical of that. You know, considering where we are with the coronavirus and cases cases spiking, and of course we have you know the European Union is about to is about to ban Americans from going over there because you know things are so terrible here. So uh, you know, this really this really is just a way to scapegoat immigrants uh, and you know to blame them for high unemployment, which uh, they didn't cause. Well, certainly, what's coming out of statements we've heard. Uh, in fact, uh, Tim Cook of Apple, for example, put out a statement. He said, uh, and a number of tech executives had say this is xenophobic, this is anti-immigrant, this is all political. Uh, yet at the same time, we do have millions of people out of work. Uh, question here, Rachel Myra from a listener says. Uh, wants to know these changes affect those that are already here on visas, and the answer, I believe, is that they are exempt as well. But another listener, Richard, says, uh, your guest glossed over the exemptions. I understand that hospitality workers are exempt. Is that true? If so, isn't this self-serving to the president's businesses? And what other (laughs) jobs or areas are exempt? Yeah, you know, uh, it it is well documented. The president uh, sometimes seems to recommend... uh, Uh, medicine that he is not willing to take himself as a businessman and an employer. Um, you know, something else that's worth pointing out here in terms of like who who is affected by this. If if you're a major multinational company like Apple or Google or Facebook, you have offices all over the world. If 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 there's somebody you really want to work for you or you know some people, even on the scale of tens of thousands of people, you can just shift the the headquarters for that work to one of your many offices. But if you're Stanford or Berkeley or that caller we heard from earlier, you know, who was hoping to hire an au pair, well, there's nothing you can do. And maybe you could also blame the pandemic. It's just made it very difficult to do all sorts of things as an employer. But there uh, are a lot of people yeah. who are affected by this. I just want to get that on uh, in, in listeners' minds here, as yeah. we've been saying. And the exemptions, the question about the exemptions, food supply workers, I believe, as well as healthcare workers with coronavirus uh, are exempt here. But the reality is uh, you did an excellent piece, Rachel, um, which I would certainly recommend uh, about the spouses. Uh, uh, One particular Indian uh, person who you focused on, who's a Google employee, uh, and his wife now is affected by this. Uh, We're talking about spouses of professors uh, who are here uh, as foreign workers and so forth. I mean, a lot of people affected. Yeah, and I think, you know, it it is interesting. We heard, uh, I think it was Costa talking earlier about, you know, the the clear dog whistle to people who are more concerned about, uh, uh, you know, more racist than genuinely concerned about fairness and equity in our employment system. Because we're talking about H-4 EADs, the the spouses of, uh, you know, H-1B visa holders uh, in the U.S. who, for a very brief period during the Obama administration, given the go-ahead to to work here in the U.S., many of these individuals have multiple degrees themselves. And it's 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 a it's a waste. It's it's talent on the table, left on the table, not to let them work. Uh, but we are ultimately talking about a hundred thousand people uh, affected, and uh, most of them from India. Many of them right here in Silicon Valley, and and yet when when this uh, program was up for review in the courts and with the Trump administration, you saw a lot of voices in the media, you know. Uh, 
conflating this particular issue with lots of other concerns that frankly reek of racism. You know, a, a hundred thousand people is is you know not even a rounding error uh, when you're talking about immigration in the U.S. Rachel Myro again is senior yeah, editor with the Silicon Valley News Desk for KQED. We're coming up on a break. I know you want to get in here, Daniel Costa. I want to hear what you have to say, uh, as well as our other guest, uh, Kopina Petibotla. But I have to go to a break. And remind listeners, if you want to weigh in here, you can do that by giving us a call at 866-733-6786 or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny. I'm Michael Krasny. We're talking about President Trump's executive order doing away for the president with H-1 visa, H-1B visas. This will go to the end of the year and other visas. And uh, I want to go to a caller. Christopher joins us from Oakland. Christopher, good morning. Yeah, I've been working uh, in the IT business uh, as a contractor since 1995. Uh, I think it's pretty exploitative. And um I think it's bad for H, uh, IT workers in the U.S. as well. Um, a lot of the um, H-1B workers, they, um, put, they're they told to put 40 hours on their time card. They en- end up working 60 or 80. And um, there's just, I feel like when you go to IT departments, there's, there's just, there's just um, they're mostly run by foreign workers now, pretty much everywhere you go. And my experience is it, it definitely does affect the rates. Um, and also, mo- uh, many of the, uh, the workers that are coming from overseas are not that highly skilled. Some of them are, and some of them aren't. And I should also say that a lot of them have been my friends and mentors. I have nothing against them personally. All right. I thank you for that statement, Christopher. Good to hear from you. appreciate your call. And let me go back to you, Daniel Costa. I know you wanted to say something before we went to that break, and I'd like to give you the opportunity to do that. Thank you. Uh, and I'm happy to respond to the card, too. But I just had a, a quick footnote to something that um, Rachel was saying, you know, she, she pointed out uh, the groups that have been calling for these bans and, and, um, and for not allowing you know, spouses of H-1B workers to have work authorization. You know, it, 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 what, the only real groups that you've seen, you know, making statements and, and quoted in the media applauding this order have been the anti-immigrant advocacy groups, uh, some of which have, you know, ties to white nationalists. And they, uh, for years, uh, point to, uh, you know, wanting restrictions on immigration because they say that it will improve wages, uh, you know, for U.S. workers and working conditions for them and open up opportunities for them. But those groups are uh, extremely hypocritical. They have never actually supported policies that would improve conditions for workers. You've never seen them say that, uh, you know, we should increase the minimum wage. They're, they're never out there supporting paid leave for workers. They uh, don't support increasing funding for the wage and hour division at the Labor Department to, to do investigations. So, uh, there's, you know, you should take uh, the statements that they make uh, with, with a grain of salt. You know, we, we, we spend $24 billion a year on immigration enforcement and only $2 billion on, um, on, uh, on labor standards enforcement. You know, it would be great if they, you know, use some of their clout with the president to, to improve conditions for workers, you know, with, with policies that would actually, actually improve. 
And again, things. Daniel Costa is Director of Immigration Law and Policy Research with the Economic Policy Institute. And uh, Kopita Petibotla, I'd like to go back to you with a question from Matthew, uh, who asks, uh, since Trump is all about the economy, what will be the actual economic impact caused by this huge loss of human capital? This seems like it could be another hit on GDP at a time where we can't afford it. Yeah, thank you for that question, Michael. Um, as you know, probably the, the Cato Institute has had several studies on the um, impact of H-1B workers um, and, you know, and, and whether um, by taking them out of the equation, how that impacts the, the economy. Um, we've seen lots of anecdotal um, examples of very su successful H-1B um, employees who've grown up the ladder and started, either started companies or um, gone on to lead companies, uh, going up to, you know, the CEO of Google and Microsoft, to name a couple. Um, so absolutely, I think that when you take high-tech workers and, in general, when you uh, try to address our, ec our economic crisis by targeting immigrants, then you're not really um, addressing the, the – the, you're not – um, acknowledging the impact that immigrants do have on the economy. If I actually may go back to a couple points that have been made um, with respect to the, you know, I think that this order is not our H-1B reform moment. And um, to the extent that that's the conversation we should be having, let's have that. But I think that the order itself is not really tailored to do to deal with that. And I know several of the questions kind of are leading in that direction, I think we should talk about what the order does. And part of what it does, for example, it, it's not even new H-1B workers. There's people that are that were already working in the United States that had gone back to their home countries like India who have been stranded and not able to return. And that includes, um, you know, some, you know, we've got people who are in H-1B in the U.S. and their spouses are abroad. And now they've been stranded because of COVID-19. And I think this just continues to Add to uh, tearing families apart unnecessarily, um, for and and also just continuing the chilling effect on um, for immigrants coming to the United States, and that's consistent with what Donald Trump has been doing for the last few years, where he's been attacking our legal immigration through a series of overregulation, and this has discouraged immigration, especially by our most global workforce. And I want to also finally say that. So many people who are in the United States right now feel that they're they're now wondering, am I am I subject to this bar? Um, people don't understand it entirely, and are worried that they're they're now going to have to leave the United States. And I think like these proclamations, when they're not when they're just sort of um, put out there with an an immediate purpose to satisfy a political. Uh, uh, strategy, they end up leaving folks in a quandary as to whether, you know, they're next, and they don't necessarily go towards the goals that they're intended towards, which is to try to help um, spur job growth. And I, I do believe that um, that's the conversation that well, we should me, be having, having. Let me take this opportunity to read a comment that sort of pushes back on this. Uh, this is Jean who writes, this is a contrary view to yours. 
says, I never thought I would agree with any policy Donald Trump did or said, but I am not a fan of the H-1B visa. I work for a large database company in Silicon Valley for seven years. They tended to hire 85% of their developers on H-1B visas, but I can guarantee you there was no special skill set they possessed. In fact, it was the opposite. They were just software developers. Those that were promoted to managers did not possess people or management skills, and I believe strongly they took jobs from Americans. Want to weigh in here, Rachel Myro? Yeah, I, I think in, in many ways we do hear anecdotal and also documented instances where companies in Silicon Valley and beyond, it must be said, in their IT departments are, are abusing the program and, and using it to, to hire people who are relatively cheaper, even if they make more than many of us, uh, and also more compliant because their their visa status is tied to their employer. But but I think it is fair to say that, that what what everybody wants, uh, perhaps at least outside of Washington, D.C., is some kind of rational, systemic overhaul or modernization of our immigration laws, going at it piecemeal, uh, regulation by regulation, especially, you know, during the election season with politicized attacks, uh, is frustrating and, and fear-inducing for an awful lot of people. Um, Will we see that kind of rational systemic overhaul given our political roadblock in Washington, D.C.? That, that really is the big open question. Well, let me bring another caller on, and that's you, Amal. Join us. You're on the air. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, so I've, I've gone through this process. I'm from India. I came here as a student, and then uh, H-1B, then green card, and now I'm a citizen. So uh, my experience, I, I have two points. One is... Uh, this this whole conversation seems very focused on manufacturing mindset, where you can replace one assembly line worker with another. Uh, and in tech, uh, that that's just not the case. You, you in many cases you you're not going to just replace a software engineer with another if you like that per or if that person you know is doing a good job. So that's one. Uh, and then the <clears throat> second part is my experience with the process. The most exploitative part of the process is when you actually apply for green card. Because when you're on H1, you can change jobs. I change jobs many times. <laughs> so that's kind of a free market. But once you apply for a green card, uh, then you're stuck to an employer for a very long time. And for yeah. Indians right now, that's more than 100 years. So uh, the, the thing, if we, if we have to change something, <clears throat> and it's just one thing. I think it would be the green card process because that's where you are an indentured servant essentially, and um, you're stuck. Namala, I'm going to let your comments stand, and thank you for them, and congratulations on becoming an American citizen, and thank you for the call, and thanks to Rachel Myro, and thanks to Kalpena uh, Peribotla, and thanks to Daniel Costa, who all joined us for this segment of Forum. Appreciate all of your being with us, and all of you who called in and wrote in. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.